Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we are joined by someone we all know and love, and that is Valerie Jarrett. Valerie is the longest serving senior advisor to a president, President Obama, of course, and is currently interim president of the Obama Foundation. But first, we need to talk about Joseph Epstein's recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, where he refers to Dr. Jill Biden as, quote, kiddo, and says that it feels, quote, fraudulent and even comic that she uses a title doctor given that she has a doctor of education. We launched Pot as a Woman with Dr. Biden as our very first inaugural guest, so we obviously have a lot to say about this. Well, first, I think, you know, to start it off with kiddo, you know that that's not a term of affection. He does not mean it that way. It was completely demeaning and really set the tone for what that article was going to be. So Dr. Jill Biden has dedicated her life to educating our future workforce at a community college, at every level, really giving to them and getting education to do it better. And I started looking up, who is this guy who put it in paper that this qualified woman was not qualified enough to use the credentials that she actually earned? And I realized that this is a guy who brags about teaching at Northwestern University for 30 years without a doctorate or any advanced degree. He also brags that he was the editor of American Scholar, which is a quarterly magazine of Phi Beta Kappa, and he was not even a member of Phi Beta Kappa. And I just wanted to write about him being the absolute epitome of white male privilege. And I had these professors and I dropped their classes because they don't teach you anything. So I'm sorry, but like, no. Well, and also, you know, in the op-ed, it's kind of bookended by saying these awful misogynistic remarks about Dr. Biden. But the whole like bulk of the op-ed is actually him just kind of waxing poetic on a Mm -hmm. rant about PhDs and honorary PhDs. And this guy wants to talk about himself. Like his ego on this whole thing is insane. And Darren, to your point about the kiddo part, it's I've always seen kiddo is like a verbal pat on the head. You know, when somebody mm-hmm. is just kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. kiddo. And to refer to a woman in her 60s who is our incoming first lady, And she received this degree that he tried to shame in her 50s after being a mother, after all of her accomplishments as a professional woman. I mean, all of the balancing of her work-life balance. I mean, this is something that I know we're going to talk to Valerie Jarrett a lot about. She has a lot of thoughts on. I mean, that is not a small feat, what she was able to do. And to minimize it like that is just beyond gross. And to see, you know, the Wall Street Journal's editor now double down on it and say that there's, you know, a coordinated negative response to a relatively minor issue, as they put it, it's kind of unbelievable to me that they would do that. And it's just one ill-informed man backing up another ill-informed man to put down a well-educated, well-versed, incredible woman that we have coming in as our first lady. When I hear them say coordinated negative response, all I think is like, no, that just means there's a groundswell of like outrage because it was so universally bad, you know, just because you have so many people 
completely up in arms about it that doesn't mean it's coordinated it means that like there's no ambiguity here right. about how off that base everyone thinks it was terrible well i loved my husband's response to it he said white dude with no doctorate has a beef with a woman who has a doctorate say what you want but i bet he doesn't have an enormous uh sheepskin <laughs> <laughs> thanks cj I, I think that it is uh, relevant um, in this context that we have a lot of men who feel a little intimidated by the incoming administration. And I, I think they needn't fe- feel intimidated, but rather get on the bandwagon with the inclusive future that we have ahead of us. And that's right. To see so many people from all walks of life coming out to defend her, I think speaks to where we are, especially as women, where we're not taking this anymore. She doesn't even have to defend herself. So many people, women and men from diverse backgrounds have come together to support her. And that actually makes me really happy. That's right. She has the credentials. She earned it. Well, I know we want to ask our next guest about this, and that's Valerie Jarrett, who, beyond being senior advisor to President Obama, is also such a staunch woman's champion and was the chair of the White House Council on Women and Girls. So let's get right to it. Well, Valerie Jarrett, we are so grateful to talk to you today. You were the longest serving senior advisor to President Obama. And as far as we know, you were the longest senior advisor serving a president ever. You were also a role model to all of us and an advocate for so many of us women in the White House. How are you feeling today to see so many of our fellow colleagues going back into the new administration? Well, I am just so proud of all of them and their commitment to service and particularly some of the younger ones who have moved up. You all know my former chief of staff, Johannes, who mm-hmm. I met when he was a field organizer in Iowa, and now he's running the transition, or Julie Rodriguez, who I also met during the 2007 campaign, who's now going to be running intergovernmental affairs. And, you know, the list goes on. Green Jean-Pierre, all these women, particularly that I help mentor, who have taken on extraordinarily important leadership roles. Uh, and then the people who are the senior folks who are really willing to go back in and continue to give and not go backwards, but really move the administration forward with the experience and the track record and the judgment and the intellect and temperament, I could go on, that are important skills that I think we've seen over the last four years. We really do need to run a government. No, you're right. I mean, I remember because we started back at the beginning of Iowa caucuses, and it is. It's um, a new generation of leadership, which we're really excited about. I just reread your book, Finding My Voice, and one part struck me because you talk about going back to work after the birth of your baby, Laura, and trying to push past the pain of needing to pump, trying to show everybody that you were back to normal. And I remember it was 2012, the year of reelect, that I had my son, Hugh, and I was running NATO and G8. And then seven weeks after I had him, they asked me to come back to help get President Obama uh, set up for the live address to the nation in Afghanistan. So I was flying to Afghanistan. And when I was reading your story, I remember, like, in some cases, it was that sacrifice that was the first acknowledgement from some of our male colleagues that I was a badass. And I remember, like, in the moment feeling, like, powerful. But 
when I'm looking at it in hindsight, I realized that though we had our babies more than 25 years apart, we repeated this cycle. So I wonder how can we use our voices to break this cycle and help women at every level birth and care for our human capital? Well, Joanna, it's such a good question. And I think back on those early days where, frankly, I was my worst enemy. Now, it would have been helpful to work in an organization that um, valued the fact that I was a mother where I thought I was much more efficient and productive and better organized. I was a better listener. I developed patience. I think by every possible metric of success, I was stronger as a mom than I was before I was a mother. But I was working in an environment where I didn't feel I could be who I was and that I was busy trying to be pretend that I was who they were. But mm-hmm. they didn't have a baby. They weren't moms. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by competing on their playing field in that way. And so part of what we have to do is speak up for ourselves. And I'll give you an example. I remember when Josh Ernest, who is uh, President Obama's communications press secretary, his wife had a baby, and he decided to no longer travel with President Obama. Would a woman have done that? And he said, no, I I promised my wife I'm going to be home in the evenings, and I can't do that if I'm flying around the world. Well, who doesn't want to fly around with the president? But it sent such a powerful message to the men and women that you can change your priorities and still be a badass. And that's what I think we have to, that's the paradigm shift, Joanna, that I think needs to change, is that we have to pull them to our definition, which means we have to change our own definition. And part of being a badass is saying, no, I'm not going to do that trip. I'll do the next one. Or maybe I won't do any trips. Yeah, But I can still be a badass. No, you're right. That's totally true. And I was listening to Mrs. Obama's podcast. And on it, you talk about supporting each other and being there for one another through motherhood. And one of the... Um, points that you brought up that really stuck out to me was how if Laura called your assistant new, it didn't matter what meeting it was, that they were to put you through. And I think that that's, we're struggling for such a, for a balance in motherhood and not just work-life balance, like a motherhood and work balance. How have you found that throughout your career? Yeah. So, well, first of all, my mom worked at a time when most moms didn't. And she was fortunate because my father was very supportive of her working. And when I was younger, she had uh, good hours. She was teaching uh, preschool, and so she was home by three. But I can remember she had the rule that if ever I called, put the call through. And I can remember, and this is now a long, long time ago, you all. <laughs> I can remember at like age seven or eight calling my mom and being on the extension phone and listening to her high heels coming down the hallway from her classroom. And when the high heels would get louder and louder, I could feel myself calming down, just knowing mm-hmm. she was coming. And I never forgot that feeling. And so I thought, well, I want to make sure Laura has that same sense of security that when she decides she needs me, I'm going to be there. And I had an assistant once who did not put Laura through. When I came outside, she said, Laura called. And I said, you know the rule. And so she said, well, she said it wasn't important. I said, a five-year-old doesn't decide if it's important. I decide if it's important. That's right. And I can tell in the first three seconds of listening to her voice whether I could say, sweetie, I'll call you back, or whether I need to spend a second and listen. And I think the point Michelle Obama was making that I was totally um, oblivious to at the time is that I was role modeling for her Mm -hmm. the new paradigm. 
where you could sit with a room full of really fancy, rich real estate developers and know that they could wait a minute and it didn't diminish the power and authority I had. And in fact, it kind of was like, wow, she's a badass. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly you know, right. Changing the definition. And I, so I give my mother credit for that. And when I was working in my first job at a law firm, I couldn't do that. And it's one of the many, many reasons why I decided I couldn't thrive in that environment because I knew I wanted to be this great mom. And in the book, I also tell this story, though, about, and this is how you have to speak up. I was in a meeting with one, another one of our former colleagues, Susan Schur, who was the corporation counsel at the time for the city. And I was the commissioner of planning and development. And we were both terrified of Mayor Daly. He was a very scary guy back then. Mm -hmm. And we were both new to our jobs and we were in a meeting with him. And we're looking at our watches and he catches us. And he said, you know, there's somewhere else you all would rather be. And I looked at Susan and I don't know what I would have done if she hadn't been there, which is why there is safety in numbers because we kind of met eyes. And I said, sir, go. The Halloween parade starts in 20 minutes and we are 25 <laughs> minutes away. And I don't know what I thought he was going to do to me. Like, fire me or you know yell at me or you really <laughs> right. hate me you know what he said then what are you doing here go and susan and i flew down lakeshore drive in chicago speeding we pull up to our kids schools they were both in second grade boy and girl and we get there just as the school door opens and all these little darlings come out dressed in costume and of course they're looking around the crowd for their mm -hmm. mom and what I, my lesson is yes i had a great boss but I also had to speak up. That's right. And I had to be willing to say, this is important to us. And if we were both single moms, if we weren't there, there was going to be nobody there. And so I think part of what we have to do is to take those, what might seem like risky moves, but he actually respected us for it. And if you don't fight for the part of your life that makes you whole, then who else is going to be thinking about you? And I hope you all would feel that in the White House, we really tried to give people in their crazy environment the space to be who they were. But you mentioned this thing about balance. I'm worried that that gives people an unrealistic expectation. So the word that I use is really more, do you have the ability to replenish yourself and lead a full life? So that when you look back on all the chapters, some of them may have been out of whack. I mean, the last eight years that I worked in the White House, there was no balance. I worked like a crazy person, but I was at a stage of my life where my daughter was grown and she was in law school and I was single and I lived 10 minutes from work and I could throw myself into it completely. But then there were other chapters where I wanted to be home to put Laura to bed. And so the question is, over all those chapters, does it make a whole? And did you do the things that helped you run the marathon as opposed to pretending like it's a, you know, a 50 your dash. It's not. It really isn't. Wow, you've just you've just said so many powerful things, um, Valerie, that I, I'm like trying to like take notes while I'm listening to you. But I want to ask you about one thing you just said because you were talking about fighting for what makes you whole. And there's an example of this that is in the news very much because what makes us feel whole 
more than our accomplishments as well as like our passions and the things that we fought for and our education and so on. And when we look at what just happened to Dr. Biden with this Wall Street Journal op-ed, I mean, with everything you just said, I, I know you must have some thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I took to Twitter and I usually try to, you know, read things a second time make sure I am not using language that's incendiary, but that really ticked me off because first of all, nobody calls a guy kiddo. Exactly. And the president-elect can call her that if he wants to, but a stranger cannot. He was trying to diminish her accomplishments, which again, we live with all of the time. And it was done in a sexist, derogatory, insulting way. But here's the good news. Most of the time in my adult life, when that happens to women, people might say to their friends or, you know, their family, oh, that wasn't right. Or that, you know, I didn't like that. People took action and she didn't have to defend herself. She was so surrounded by people coming to her defense that the Wall Street Journal had to get really snippy and like, well, oh, mm -hmm. it was an orchestrated reaction. No, it wasn't orchestrated. It's just a lot of people who found their voice and will not stand by and let that happen. I think that's where our strength comes. And it's why before, even before Vice President-elect Harris was selected by President-elect Biden as his running mate, a group of women got together and we said, we're gonna have her back, whoever she is, because we'd already seen these racist, sexist tropes directed at Senator Harris and we'd seen what Elizabeth Warren had gone through. And, and so we thought, well, let's just put a marker out there before it's attached to a person to put the media on notice and put all the people who are gonna speak out on this historic pick on notice that we expect a leveling of the playing field. And look, Vice President-elect Harris has competed on an uneven playing field her entire life. I had no doubt that she could. The point is she shouldn't have to. And I think it's up to all of us and not just women. I need, I want calling on men to speak up too and be our allies to say, no, you better even that playing field. And one reporter said to me, well, what exactly do you want us to do? I said, before you use a word, ask yourself, would you use that word directed at a man? And would it be pejorative? So for example, ambitious. Why is that so insulting when it's about a woman? You know, right. there was just a show on CNN about vice presidents and but tell me a vice president who doesn't want to be president. And, I, and mm -hmm. if he says he or she doesn't want to be president, they're not telling you the truth. Of course they're ambitious. You want them to be prepared to be president because God forbid it might happen. But one of the criticisms of, about then Senator Harris is, oh, she's too ambitious. Give me a break. When you look at the incoming administration and the women, especially in the communication shop, because we're now we're talking about the voices that are going to be, you know, in media, out front, you know, they're pretty much, they're all women, I believe, in the, the senior communications role. On, on both the president and the vice president's um, shops, they are all women. And those of you who were in the Obama administration, and look, we prided ourselves on diversity. We prided ourselves on being inclusive. But never before in the history of our country have we had the communication shop who, as you just said, Alejandro, those are the people who are out there hearing the voice and the message. And I think this group of women particularly have so much credibility with the press and with the public that when they speak, they'll know not only do they represent the president, but that they're telling the truth. And that is a brand new day. It's going to be so refreshing. Well, that's what I want to ask you. How do you think this dynamic then of this information coming out of the White House will change coming from all female voices in the comm shop? Yeah, well, well, I will say this. Now, 
I give our comm shop a lot of credit too. And I can remember one of our press secretaries who will remain nameless said once when we were doing a prep and we couldn't, we just weren't sure about like the policy and we were like giving him fuzzy information. And that was on the policymakers. And he looked at us and he said, I can't go out there and say something that is not true. Because if I do, then that not only reflects on me, but it reflects on the president. Mm-hmm. And our job is to ensure his credibility. Well, doesn't that sound like refreshing right refreshing now? Refreshing. Refreshing. So I think that this particularly cohort of women will be able to um, reestablish trust with the press and thereby have a better conduit to the American people um, than when you worry that every word that is said could be absolutely untrue. They won't say something that isn't true and they'll push the teams to make sure they get it right before they go out there and deliver that message. And I also say this, which is a broader context about the importance of diversity and inclusion. And President Obama wrote about this in his book, where early on some of the senior women were beginning to shrink. And I said to him, you know, they might talk up in meetings with you, but they're actually not talking up in meetings when you aren't there. And he said, why? And I said, well, because the guys talk over them and talk too loud. And just like in most work environments. And so we invited all the women to dinner. And he said, this is the White House. I want you to speak up. And this isn't about you and your ideas. This is about me. And I will make better decisions with the benefit of your input. If I wanted to just listen to myself, I would appoint people who look just like me. But you have a different perspective. That's why I think it's so wonderful that, well, President Obama selected Joe Biden, who was very different than he, not in core values, but in life experiences. And I think the same thing with uh, Vice President-elect Harris has a whole different set of life experiences to the president-elect. And what he has said is, and the women in the press corps are a great example of it, the press team, not the press corps, is I want to make sure that the people who are in my orbit, who are giving me advice and counsel, tell me what they really think. And I want it to be a different perspective than the one that I have. And in so doing, it doesn't mean I automatically agree with them. What it does mean is they'll make me think harder. And I think that that's what this group of women will do, not just with the press, but within the White House and with the cabinet. They're going to push them. They're going to ask new different perspectives. They're going to make sure that informed decisions are made. And that only comes through not just diversity, but a spirit and a culture of inclusion where their views are respected. And he's, he, the vice, the president elect is showing how much he values diversity by a running mate that is a woman and a person of color, uh, as well as surrounding himself in both his white house and his cabinet with the same. It's very exciting. And I think, it is. and I think, you know, there are some people who are saying, Oh, well, he's going back to people from, President Obama, well, first of all, it was the Obama-Biden administration. Many of the people he selected worked directly for him, but the ones that worked for President Obama, he got to see road tested and how do they respond in a crisis and what are they made of and do they lose their focus and do they start thinking about themselves or do they stay singularly focused on what's in the best interest of the American people and will that track record of experience give them the creativity and ingenuity to face the challenges that lie ahead. And I say, yes. Yeah. Well, and I read you wrote about it and he wrote about it. And it is, it's one of those meetings that I think, you know, for those of us who started at the beginning of Iowa, you know, we were the dreamers, right? We were the ones who really truly believe in equality 
And I think for so many of us, we ran into some of these same obstacles. But it's interesting because I read of it, I wasn't at the same senior level. I was, you know, director of press advance. So I was dealing out on the road all the time, but with some of these same obstacles. And I wonder how can we scale the impact this time that that meeting had? What changed and what more can we do to make sure that no woman has to shrink to these obstacles yet again? Yeah, it's such a good question, Joanna, because I think what President Obama um, admitted in the book, quite honestly, was that he did not realize the kind of culture that was being created in his White House and the um, chilling impact it would have on the willingness of the women to participate. He knew, well, he grew up surrounded by women and he married a you know, badass woman. He's got two mm-hmm. daughters. He assumed that because he got it, that it would permeate through the organization. And I think one of the lessons and takeaways is, is that inclusive, inclusivity has to be very intentional. And it takes reinforcement over and over and over again. And look, I prided myself. I always talked about what it was like being a young, working, single woman. And I told my story long before I wrote the book. Yet I had a deputy who came into me and said, I want you to know I'm probably going to um, step down in about six months. And I'm like, no, you're not. What are you talking about? And she says, well, I want, I'm planning to have a baby. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I just don't think I can do this job and have a baby. I said, you're telling that to me? Do you know how insulting that is? Of course we will make this work. That's what I do. And so I use myself to say, well, my goodness, we all bring our baggage to each new environment. And the people who are in positions of authority have to recognize that and be very intentional about how they give people permission to be their whole selves. But then the other piece of it, I think, is important, is again, we have to speak up. And one of the things, um, look, this all boils boils down to relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And do you trust the people with whom you work? Do you feel that they respect and trust you? Are you willing to earn that trust knowing that in the beginning you don't know each other that well? Another advantage to this new team coming in, they actually do know each other. Many of us may have worked in the campaign. We networked in the White House before when President Obama was elected. But after our dinner with him, I started inviting the women in the White House to dinner on our own without the president. Because he'd said, well, come back and have dinner with me again if you want to. And we're like, well, no, once is enough. We, we wanted your support. You gave it to us. You told us you're going to go mm-hmm. talk to the guys. So we started having dinner. And this is what I want your audience to really think about we would go out and we would not talk about work. What would we talk about? We talk about what everybody talks about with people that they have dinner with. We talked about our kids and our families and our hopes and our dreams and our challenges. And we talked about the guys and you know how difficult they were being. And we formed a bond of trust. And this is the point. When you walk into a meeting and you're a little nervous about speaking up and you see around the table a couple of people, three people, maybe four people who you just had dinner with the night before and you trust them because you know them and you know their vulnerabilities and they know yours, you are much more likely. It makes you braver, which is why there is safety Mm -hmm. in numbers. It's not enough when people say, oh, we have diversity. We have a woman and we have a black person and we have a gay person. No, no, no. You need five women. You need seven gay people. You need, because the cohort needs to feel the sense of empowerment that comes with the safety of numbers. And there is a tipping point 
where when you get past that point, it changes the culture and the Biden-Harris uh, White House has already reached that tipping point and they're not even done yet. You're so right, Valerie. And what you're saying is resonating with me. I feel like it, I feel warm because it brings me so much comfort because I know when you are searching for that familiar face, that trusted ally in the room. And we saw it during the Obama administration and we're seeing it so much more now during the Biden-Harris, the incoming administration. But how do we encourage women to really step out from behind the scenes, to not be the deputy, to not be the take the junior role? How do we encourage them to step out and to step into the light? Well, one of the things that as a general rule, we're not that good at, if we're going to be perfectly honest, is self-promotion. And look, I remember the first time I had a mentor 30 years ago who told me I should go in and ask for a promotion. I talked about this in my book too. And I had this notion that when my boss thought I was deserving of a promotion, he would give it to me. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that? You have to go in and ask for what you want. And just because somebody offers you one thing doesn't mean you have to just say thank you so much and walk away. Counter offer. Men counter offer all the time. All you the tell time. me a man who didn't walk in day one and think he deserved a promotion. Right? And so I'm not saying we have to do that, but I do, we have to know our value, we have to know our worth, and we have to be willing to face the rejection of somebody saying, no, you're not ready. And then you've got to push them and say, well, okay, if I'm not ready now, what do I need to do in order to be ready? Because I'm going to be back in six months. And that means swallowing a little bit of your pride. Mm-hmm. But if in six months you go back and the answer is yes, wasn't it worth it? Right. And if the answer is no too often, well, then maybe you need to change jobs. Maybe you're not in the right place. Maybe you're not somewhere where you can thrive. And I think we have to constantly kind of go through that gut check, is this the right place for me? Am I getting the kind of support I need so that I really can move up in the organization? And I think what's heartening is seeing that people that are now who we met back in Iowa are moving up to more leadership positions, be they both men and women. Mm-hmm. And then I hope that they'll be backfilled um, with a diverse slate as well so that the next administration has people who are ready to move into that next slot. And and we had a disadvantage in the Obama administration because there had been um, eight years of George W. Bush. And so there wasn't a bench that was in waiting, whereas Mm -hmm. our bench has only been really out out of the loop for four years. And many of them were involved in all kinds of organizations steeped in these policy issues. So they could go right back in. Yeah. We also, I think, recruited a diverse slate of people who are more junior in our administration, and now we're ready to move up. And that's my thing as well. You're so right. It's it, And it, it is something I think about a lot because all of us, after working for President Obama's voice for so long, have had that opportunity to really step back and find our own voice. So, you know, I loved your book. I loved the, the name of it. But, you know, you talk about setting our own table and kind of creating these dinners. And that's what I think we're trying to do with this podcast is even just, you know, getting all of these women talking about these issues that are so near and dear And another element that I thought was just fascinating that you and President Obama both wrote about that trip we took to Egypt, to the pyramids. Yeah, wasn't that something? What a day. Oh, my God. I mean, Galesburg, Illinois girl goes to the pyramids with the president. I had to pinch myself. All of us had to pinch ourselves all the time, right? But what he wrote was that he, when he was looking at the images sketched in history, I tried to imagine the worries, 
the struggles, the catastrophes, just as I and all of us who will one day turn to dust. And he talks about kind of that moment of realizing that we are just here for this short period on earth. And I guess the question is, how can we, because I think everyone wants to have impact. How can we focus on what matters and how do we keep hope alive when sometimes it looks really dark? Yeah, well, a few things I would say on that note, Joanna. First of all, begins with yourself. In the book, I talk about listening to the quiet voice and the quiet voice is the one inside of each of us. And it's one that sometimes we don't trust the most. And I'm going through a decision right now and one of my best friends said to me this morning, Valerie, trust your gut. And of course she was right. And I don't know why I was like trying to, because everybody was telling me to do one thing and I know it's not the right thing. I know my gut is telling me something else. And I think we have to learn to trust our own gut. We know ourselves Mm -hmm. better than anybody. And that means we have to own our life choices too, and not like be a passive participant in your own life, but be prepared to make decisions that only you can make. Uh, And that's part of how we begin to make an impact. You have to make up your mind that you are gonna be a force for good. And that's a deliberate life choice. Mm -hmm. And that you are gonna find institutions, organizations, small businesses, sole proprietorship, whatever it is, that meets your passion and that will bring out the best in you. And you have to surround yourself with people who are rooting for you. Mm -hmm. And I long time ago um, developed the art of letting go of friends that didn't truly wish me well. And you know, those people who might show up and, you know, but they kind of revel in your misery. And Mm -hmm. you see that just let them go, let them go. Surround yourself with people who will nurture you and love you and, And I think girlfriends are really important in our lives. I mean, I don't know what guys talk about when they're on the golf course or whatever, but I'm sure it's nothing, right? Whereas we have So that's part of why they go, because they don't want to have that conversation that we might make them have, right? But we love that. We, um, there was one time, I'll never forget, I was um, visiting the Obamas and they had, Mrs. Obama had a group of her girlfriends over and we were sitting up in the yellow oval talking. And President Obama stopped in and, you know, he hung around with us for a few minutes and then he left and he came back three hours later and we were still talking. And he said, what on earth could you possibly be still talking about? And we're like, oh no, we're just getting started. We're getting getting ready to go really deep here. Because that's what we are comfortable doing. And so you need to have people in your life who know you well enough to be able to go really deep with you because that's part of the replenishment. Uh, I had brunch every Sunday when we were in Washington if possible, I'm not saying it was every Sunday, but almost every Sunday with a group of my best friends, four of who had joined the administration with us, moved from Chicago, and one who um, moved but didn't join the administration, but her daughters were good friends with Lily and Sasha, and so she moved to DC to be close to them. And so these are people who knew us from back in the day, right? And that settled me. It made me feel like I was the Valerie Jarrett I really am, as opposed to this person that had this position in the White House. And so everybody has to figure out what it is that replenishes you. But that's Mm -hmm. part of the art of it too. And then when you feel well loved and well nurtured, it enables you to be braver Mm -hmm. and and to try to get comfortable being uncomfortable and push yourself outside that comfort zone. So I always say if you're in a job, you feel like I got this, 
can't bring a job. To your point about surrounding yourself with people you feel comfortable with that you know and trust and have your back, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't have this time with you and go into the state of politics right now. What do you say to folks that think that this is not going to be as innovative as it could be as far as a team? Like, What, what are your thoughts on having so many Obama folks come back in at the yeah. cabinet level? Yeah, I'll say wait and see. And you're going to appreciate the fact that this is not a time for on-the-job training. The stakes are too high. We are in the middle of a global pandemic that the Trump administration totally dropped the ball on. And the people who are coming in, including Ron Klain, who was our manager of the Ebola crisis, wrote the textbook that we left to the Trump administration on how to handle a pandemic. Because we learned from H1N1 and Zika and Ebola. Mm -hmm. And so I assure you, he knows what's in that handbook and he will put it to work. And so I think what you want are people who have experience. Take John Kerry being willing to come in. He'd been Secretary of State, and now he has a new position in charge of climate. Well, he negotiated the Paris Climate Accord. He doesn't have to go read the deal. He wrote the deal. I want that person in there fighting for climate because he can hit the ground running. And he worked very closely with Tony Blinken, who was the Deputy Secretary of State, who's now going to be the Secretary of State. So they know each other. They know, they know they can trust each other. They don't have to get to know one another. And they have the creativity to think of no solutions. This notion that we're going to go backwards when we were in a very different point in time than we were in four years ago doesn't make sense. That's not how smart people work. They, they think of new innovative solutions based on their past experience. And, and the experience is right now something I think is sorely needed in government, coupled with people who are there for the right reasons, who really do believe in public service. Mm-hmm. And the president-elect has like a lot on his plate for his first 100 days, the economy, the pandemic, all of that. From your experience, what are the most important things that he needs to do in these next 100 days to hit the ground running? Well, the first thing is pick the best possible team. And I think he has knocked it out of the park so far on that measure. And we've talked about the team. Secondly, you've got to get your policy councils organized around the big plate of issues that he has to deal with. Front and center is getting this pandemic under control. We cannot grow our economy until we stop the spread, until we efficiently and equitably distribute the vaccines and turn vaccines into vaccinations. And we know that there are headwinds. We're going into winter. We just heard the snowstorm is coming to New York. Is that going to affect the transportation and delivery of the vaccines? Are people going to be able to get them in a fair and equitable way? Are you going to see lines around the block with people waiting? How are we going to do this fairly and efficiently? This is a big priority. We also know that we're coming up on the end of the year. 12 million people are going to lose their unemployment insurance. Small businesses are closing right and left. The moratorium on um, evictions is about to end and there isn't rent assistance available. Um, schools need resources in order to prepare themselves for children to go into those schools in a safe way. There are so many um, state and local governments that are teetering on the verge of collapse because they don't have the resources that they need as well to manage uh, this challenging time. And so I still don't know why Congress can't pass something like today, but even if they do pass something today, that's just to stop the bleeding. Then what we need is a bigger recovery package which he will have to focus on after his election. And that is to be the catalyst. But here the good news again is that the vice president, soon to be president, 
oversaw the Recovery Act in 2009 when mm -hmm. President Obama were elected, $800 billion that went out the door and helped jumpstart the economy then. So again, he's been through this before and he'll take that skill set and apply it moving forward. And then we have to reestablish credibility around the world. Uh, we have been basically going it alone with this America only strategy. And so rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, re-entering the World Health Organization so that we can yes. tackle this yeah. pandemic in concert with the rest of the world as opposed to in isolation, making sure that resources are going to the appropriate place, putting an attorney general in place that is independent and reestablished credibility and justice, addressing the racial divisions in our country that are systemic and need to be recognized as such and dealt with as such. This is not something that's happening just within the police department. It's ubiquitous. And so having people who understand that. And then I also think, and he's, do, he's doing this already, tone matters. Tone at the top matters. A president who wears a mask because the scientists tell him to matters. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should, as we talk about all the important policy work that he has to do, using that powerful bully pulpit to signal the kind of behavior we should expect from a president and from ourselves is important too. Leadership is, a, is as much about how you behave as it is about what you do. You were notably there at the inception of President Obama's political career and by his side really every step of the way. From your vantage point, what advice do you have for our new vice president-elect Kamala Harris on her role as the first female vice president? No, well, I think um, she heard very clearly what he said when he nominated her, which is that he wanted her voice to be the last voice in the room before he made a decision. And part of why he chose her, I believe, is because he knows that she's not afraid to speak up. She doesn't have any of those issues. She's going <laughs> to let him know exactly what she thinks. And then she recognizes that he's the president. There is only one president. And the vice president's job is to support the president. And part of how you support him is telling him what you think. Back to the earlier part of our conversation where we have to use our voices to differentiate our perspectives and make sure that the president is thinking things through in, in his own way. I'm sure that she will carve out areas of um, her interest and expertise that are important to him to know are in good hands, such as Vice President Biden was responsible for the Recovery Act, um, the winding down of our troops in Iraq. He was um, well known on the world stage, and so it was very helpful to President Obama to have him available to talk to world leaders. His relationships in the Senate were very important, and Senator Harris clearly has relationships that are more recent than the ones that the, that the president-elect will have. And so I think um, she will build um, an ability to advise him in a strong and powerful way. And then I'm sure that she will work out a portfolio of interests um, that are important that he will be able to give to her, knowing that they will be well-managed. And I think that their teams also will work very seamlessly together. And I was listening to President Obama back on this vice president special CNN did a um, a while ago, and he said it wasn't just important that he and Biden got along and had a meeting of the minds. It was important that the teams did too. And having been a part of that, I can say you really have to work hard. And communications is essential. Uh, inclusion is is essential. Evan Ryan, who you know, when she worked for the vice president, she came over to my team meetings because we wanted to make sure that there was seamlessness between us. And that happened up and down the organization. 
So the good news is that they don't need a lot of advice. I think that not only was I there all ears, all eight years, but the president-elect was too. And the vice president-elect comes in with just a treasure trove of experience um, on her own, in her own right. Valerie, your words and your guidance has been so incredible today. And you have been such a trusted advisor to so many people. And I'm just curious because you have completely piqued my curiosity with the talk of a decision that you had to make. Could it possibly be that you would be joining the new administration? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I had my fingers crossed. No, 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 no. The most important thing in my life in this chapter is being a grandmother. And so I am, everything is evolving around baby James. And that's the only reason why I'm in New York. This is the one city I said I would never spend any time in. And here I am getting ready to dash over and see him before the sun goes down. Um, so no, I'm going to be rooting from them, uh, from the outside. I've helped and will continue to help in any way that I can, but no, my decision, my quandary was a lot more mundane than that one. <laughs> 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 helping President Obama with his foundation right now. You know, Wally Adeyemo is joining the administration. He'll be the deputy treasury secretary. So I'm going to lend a hand until we find a permanent replacement there. Uh, and I think it has the opportunity to go out and find the next generation of leaders from not just around the country, but around the world and help teach them best practices to do just what you asked, which is how do you go and, and make a difference? Oh, you're so right. And I appreciate that in every uh, role in your life, you've really carved your own history. And so we're so grateful that you were able to join us today to share some of your wisdom, because I know we, we have a lot of change we believe in still. I have I still have my change we need. <laughs> so we're working on it. Don't lose sight of that. And let me just say before we close out, I am so proud that you all have come together and created something out of nothing, right? This is yours. You own it. It's your brand. You decide who the guests are. You run the show. And that makes me feel like you are already doing what we hoped would happen, which is finding what's your passion, using your voice to make a difference, highlighting what other women are doing that are uh, making an impact. And so I want to thank you. And just it makes my day to see each and every one of you. I'm, I'm really I'm proud of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. Well, I know it's going to take us a while to actually fully synthesize every one of those answers. And I I think we we have to, right? Because we want to create the world as it should be. So um, listening to Valerie Jarrett, who is so pivotal in Barack Obama's journey, I think helps us get there. I'll definitely be listening to that one a couple times. Same as I. So we want to shift to our POTUS of the week, and that's Dolly Parton. Not only did she help fund the research behind the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, but we recently learned that while on set, she pulled a nine-year-old child out of the path of a moving car. She's saving lives and cementing her legacy. And our shout out of the week goes to Dr. Kizmekia Corbett. She's one of the National Institute of Health's leading scientists. Dr. Corbett, who is only 34 years old, is an expert on the front lines and one of the key players in developing the science that could end the pandemic. Incidentally, she's also involved with the Moderna vaccine, so tied to Dolly Parton. So thank you for all of your incredible work, Dr. Corbett. I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of holding out for the Jolene vaccine. 
And as always, remember to hit that subscribe button so you will be one of the first to hear our latest episode. We have a new episode dropping next week despite the holiday. And if you have a moment, leave a rating and review, which always helps us. Thanks for listening and talk to you guys soon.